we are starting a brand new series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. And some of you are very glad about that because we're not talking about Ezekiel. All right, so that's good for you. I'm glad that happened for you so we, we can move on. And, uh, and as we get started, we just kind of want to fill in uh, some of the history here. And uh, the way that goes is, uh, remember, all that that we were talking about Israel, all that history of Israel, that, that's a country the size of New Jersey. And we hear about it in the world all the time. But then we talked about how, uh, again, I'm just trying to explain something that will lead in. But remember, we were talking about 722 years before Jesus, the Assyrians came in and they wiped out the northern kingdom. I guess that's way down here. And uh, they, they wiped them out and then scattered them all over. So those people are deported all over. Then after that, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and then they conquered the southern kingdom and they scattered them everywhere and then they took off. And so all that happens. You have Jewish people all over the place. The temple was destroyed them, but there was always a remnant of Jewish people in what we call Israel, but since 586 until modern times, Israel never controlled their own territory. They weren't a sovereign nation until just recently in 1948. And so anyway, so you have Jewish people all over. Now we're going to go back to the time of Jesus. The temple's been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, some of the exiles that came back. They didn't do a very good job. Herod the Great, just before the time of Christ, is, has refurbished the temple, and that includes the the, the wall, the western wall, the wailing wall, they're called. That was part of uh, Herod's reconstruction. But then, after, and that was there when Jesus lived. But about 40 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, they rebelled against the Romans who occupied them and owned them. And the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, and the, that second temple. And that second temple has never been rebuilt. So now that's happened. But... After the resurrection of Christ, the temple is destroyed. We're still in the first century. The, the 11 apostles of Jesus spread out, and they start ministering God's word, as did other believers. And so the church is spreading all around the Mediterranean Sea. And not only that, not only were there the 11 apostles, and, and they replaced Judas with a 12th, but then there was also Paul. Paul was an unusual uh, disciple of Jesus. And then he started his missionary journeys. And so that's kind of the system. Now, now we're advancing to 95 AD. We're still in the first century. All of the letters of the New Testament have already been written and have been passed around. All of the apostles have been killed by people opposing Christ. And Paul has been killed. And now there's only one apostle left. They've all been killed except for one. And his name is John. John now is an old man. And he has been ministering. He, he wrote some books. You know, he wrote the Gospel of John that we went through the entire gospel took us several months, ended a few months ago. And then he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But he writes this book, Revelation, and then that's what we're talking about today. John is exiled to an island called Patmos. How many have ever heard 
of the island of Patmos. How many have ever heard from the Bible the island of Patmos? All right, a lot of you have. All right, the island of Patmos, this is modern Turkey. This is the Algean Sea that connects with the Mediterranean down here. The island of Patmos is right there. So it's in the Algean Sea. That's where Paul is. Paul's been exiled there as punishment for, because he's been preaching the gospel. It's, he's coming to the end of his life. There's some churches in what we call Asia Minor, but modern-day Turkey. And there's actually several churches there. But John contacts seven of them, and he asks for those messengers to come to him on Patmos. In the meantime, he has received a revelation from God. And we heard a little bit about that in Ezekiel, that people could have visions from God. But this is unlike the rest of the New Testament, because... The, the whole New Testament is just letters. And here's a letter, but a big part of this letter is a revelation from God, which is unique in the New Testament. So he's got, he has this revelation from God, which included messages to these seven churches. Now, there are other churches like Colossae that are not here. Seven are picked out as representative recipients for this letter. So these messengers show up, and then John... He writes a letter to them, one letter, makes seven copies, and he basically calls them in and gives them that letter, and there are seven identical copies so they could take that to their churches, and we call that letter the book of Revelation. That's what Revelation is. So, you with me so far? All right, we're going to move forward. So that's great. And it starts then in Revelation 1.1. He says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to the bondservant John. And a couple things here. Angel actually means the word angelos in, in Greek means two different things. One is a supernatural being, and that's what that means here. But I want to point this out. Revelation. The Greek for, for that is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. And I think sometimes we hear apocalypse, and to us that means you know, end times, which is right, but sort of catastrophic events and all this stuff, which happens in the end times, and that's true. But the word apocalypsis basically just means to reveal. A lot of people look at the book of Revelation and they're thinking, wow, this is confusing, this is bizarre, you know, it doesn't make sense, it's hard to follow, and, and it is kind of tough. But it's not meant to be that way. Revelation means to unveil, to uncover, to, to make known. That's the intention of the book of Revelation. That's to make visible. And then it continues in the next verse, verse 2. So it says, who, and talking about John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy 
and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And notice he's saying, blessed is he who reads. So he's saying, if you read Revelation, you'll be blessed like the rest of the Bible. And he's saying those who hear, and why is he saying hear? Because most of the people, the original recipients of Revelation, they're going to go to church and they're going to have this message read to them and part of it is addressed directly to them. And so they hear, so you're blessed if you hear the words and then heed. I mean, if you actually do it, that, that's what he's telling us because time is near. And then here he starts. He's like, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So th this is how they did greetings. You know how we write letters? Like, it kind of doesn't make sense because it'll be like, you know, dear John, and then I'm going to tell you three pages of stuff and from Kevin. John might have not wanted to know who that was from before he got to the very end. It might make a difference, you know, whatever. But they, they kind of did that better in the first century. They, right away they'd say, hey, this is Kevin writing to John, and now here's the stuff. That's what John, he's, he's writing this to them, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, normal greeting, from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's a unique way of referring to the Holy Spirit, emphasizing his fullness and completeness, because that number is seven, before his throne. And then and from Jesus Christ. So we know God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all three are involved that John's talking about here. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, describing Jesus, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and key, this is the gospel, this is what we talk about all the time, and released us from our sins by his blood. He's reminding, and hey, God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, who remember, came to the earth and died, bled in order to pay for our sins. We'll get back to that just a, a little bit later. So um, he's talking about the whole Trinity there. And then now going to, to verse 9. This is kind of the body of the letter. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's saying, I'm on this island because I was exiled there as a punishment for talking about God, is what he's basically telling us. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, and then he names them, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and also to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So he's saying, hey, John, you know, write this stuff and send it. And these seven churches are seven of the historical churches that existed in 95 AD while he's writing this letter. And so then John explains, hey guys, 
I saw Jesus in his glory, very descriptive language, and, and he's walking among seven lampstands, which we're going to find out are the seven churches. And he has seven stars in his hands. We're going to find out those are the representatives of those churches. And so, but because then here God explained that. Jesus explained what he wanted John to know about that. He says this. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place. You can outline Revelation that way. What's happened, what's happening, and what will happen take place after these things. So what, what, happened, what is happening and what will happen after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars. Now, hey, you saw that weird vision of Jesus? I'm going to explain it. Jesus is saying to John, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now here, we're realizing angel means something different than the earlier verse we read. Angel means two things in Greek. It can mean a spiritual being, but the word literally translated just means messenger because those spiritual beings are usually messengers. So that's one way we take it. That's the way we normally take the word. But in Greek, the word angelos is also means message. And so if, if I was to send somebody a message, uh, and I sent them a messenger, hey, the messenger should give you this information, then I would write the same word. That means angel. It's, it's one word with two different meanings. Here, the word angel we, angels, we believe, is human messengers, not angelic messengers. He's saying, hey, um, the seven stars in the right hand are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And, and the reason the context tells us that angels is human messengers rather than angelic beings, because as you follow just these few verses at the beginning of Revelation, if you took it the other way, it would mean, okay, Jesus, I'm sending you an angel to tell you, John, this stuff so you, John, can tell seven other angels that can go tell the, the churches these things. Rather, it's just, no, I, Jesus, am using an angel to tell you, John, so you can tell the messengers of these churches these things. Does that make sense? Are you following with me? Okay, great. And so, we'll, we'll, hold on just right there for a minute. So, that's where we're going. Now, the seven churches are all going to be mentioned, and they all have a message from God. And it's going to start with the church at Ephesus. All right, so here's the seven churches, but boom, here he is, and he's, all these, he's called these messengers to come. He's giving them seven identical copies, but the first one that's mentioned in the letter is the church of Ephesus. And I just want to remind you what's happening in Ephesus. Ephesus is it's not the capital, but it's the largest city in this region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's the largest city. They say, scholars say, between 300 and half a million people, between 300,000 and half a million people lived in Ephesus in 95 AD, at the end of the first century. And it had four major highways coming in. This is sort of east and west. Here's Greece. Turkey, Greece, and East. This, this region is where Europe meets Asia, and right below that is Africa. And so it's all coming together. There are four major highways come into here, and there's a port 
in Ephesus. So ships come in, and then they have these highways that go these different places. And so it's a key place. That's why it's growing so much. That's why it's such a major port. Now, its port is actually a, the mouth of a river that comes in a little bit because that's all a sandy beach re, a region. And so you come into the city. Uh, you get closer to it up this river. The river is filling with silt, so you can only get so close. And over time, that filled up. That's why there's no city there today because it did completely fill up. But we know back in 95 AD that the, the port where the ships can get was about three miles from the city. And then this was the path from the port to the city that we can still see today. Now, Ephesus was not only the largest city in that area, but it was also known for some things. Not only its size, not only is it kind of the hub and, and the, the commerce city, but it was also home to the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so the Ephesians were super proud of this temple. It's, it's to uh, a fertility goddess named Artemis. In this temple was their pride and joy. It dominated the skyline outside the city. So all the visitors coming in see this temple. And it's super corrupt. It had thousands of temple priestesses who functioned as temple prostitutes. Also, the temple grounds was a sanctuary for criminals. Not the city, but the temple area Criminals can come in, and if they stayed on the temple grounds, they could not be prosecuted. The other thing is, inside this temple, it was considered so massive and so impregnable that it also served as a bank, which is kind of weird that you have all the criminals can come here, and oh, by the way, that's where we're also keeping all of our money, same spot. But that's, that's how it was in the first century. And it worshiped, they worshipped uh, a god, Artemis, um, who also sometimes correlates with the Roman god, Diana. And so the city's huge. It's built up. You can see the ruins of it today. This is the library. But here's the history of Ephesus. As the, the disciples and the apostles started spreading out from Israel after the death of Jesus, they started going around the Mediterranean Sea. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, he comes into Ephesus, a thriving city, he finds 12 other men, a few people, who are believers. And so then he goes in to the city, into their synagogue, and he starts preaching about Christ. He does that for like a, a few months, but then after a few months, some of the more staunch Jewish believers say, hey, this isn't Judaism anymore, this is a problem. They kick Paul out of the synagogue. Paul then uh, finds a school that gives him space that might have looked a lot like this library here where he was able to teach people in, in Ephesus about the gospel for over two years. So he's teaching them over two years and changes are happening uh, in, that, in that area. So many changes are happening that a silversmith, idol maker, starts realizing, hey, why is my business not so good anymore? And it's because so many people have turned to Christ, they, they don't want to worship idols made of silver and stone and wood, and so they're not buying idols anymore. That silversmith contacts all of his tradesmen. You can read this in the history of that in Acts 19. 
that silversmith contacts other silversmiths in Ephesus. They cause a riot against Paul's teaching. And so it gets real dicey there for a while. They've been super effective, but now there's big opposition. And then this comes into play. This is called their theater. We would call it a stadium. It still exists today. That's what it looks like. You can walk through it in Turkey if you want to go there. That stadium sat over 20,000 people. It was thought to be the largest stadium slash theater in the world in 95 AD. I don't know how they can exactly know that for sure, but they were there. The riot breaks out against the Christians. They all make their way to this stadium, 20,000 people. They grab two of the Christians that were in Paul's church. They drag them into the stadium and then they start shouting. You know how, how many of you have been to an Ohio State game? All right. And then you know how they start going around, around the thing? Oh, H. Who's with me on this? I, O-H. Okay, yeah, that was kind of weak. But anyway, yeah, you know how that goes around the whole stadium? They start doing that. Only what they're shouting is great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They have these guys that are teaching Christianity down at the bottom, and they just drowned all this out with this shouts in unison. Scripture tells us historically they did that for two hours. Two hours nonstop shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, because this was the capital of worshiping uh, Artemis, and so they kept doing that. Paul wants to go in and address the hostile crowd. He had already been thinking about moving on to another area, and his friends are saying, hey, Paul, you know how you were thinking about moving on to another area? You're not going to find a better time than this. I mean, this is the time. And so they don't let Paul go in, and sure enough, Paul, you know, this quiets down. A governor gets there and says, you're going to get us in trouble with Rome if you don't knock this off, and they kind of disperse and everything's okay. Paul ends up leaving, but that's the, that's the church at Ephesus. And so Paul leaves. He goes on other missionary churches other places. About 10 years later, he writes a book back to these people where he lived for over two years, and that book is in the Bible, and it's called Ephesians, right? And then a few decades, over the next few decades, here's what happens. All the original apostles of Jesus have died except for one. Paul, I say have died. They've all been killed for their faith except for one. Paul has been beheaded by Nero in Rome. So they're all, there's one guy left and his name's John. And then like I said, he's calling and he's calling this and he's writing this book. Now, as he writes this, even John, scholars think, spent a little time in Ephesus teaching after Paul. But anyway, so when he writes this letter of Revelation, the first church that it talks about is Ephesus. And then here's what happens. He commends them, but then he um, challenges them, and then he corrects them on how to fix that. And that's kind of a pattern that follows for the other churches. He commends them, he confronts them, he corrects them. And so here's how that part goes, and that's in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel, and now this means the messenger, the pastor, probably a pastor from each church showed up there to see Paul. 
And he's saying, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put uh, to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. So this is all a condemnation. Hey, man, I know your deeds. You've worked hard. You've persevered. You cannot tolerate evil. It's all around you, and you are successfully standing against it. You cannot tolerate evil men. And then it goes on. And you put to test those who call themselves Christians or apostles, people who come in and say, hey, this is who I am. Yeah, I'm a believer too, and here's what I want to teach you. And they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't sound right. That, that's not what God says. And they are not, and you found them to be false. You know, he's all over it. So he's commending them, and he continues. He says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown Weary, he's saying, you stuck it out. You kept going, even with the opposition, even with the hostile crowd. You're effective in your witness. You made a difference in the city. You're killing it. You're, you're nailing it. You're doing a great job. He appreciates their work, their dedication, their doctrine. You know, they've worked hard, and their, their doctrine's spot on, and they, can, they see the false doctrines that are being taught in other places. And it's amazing how that happens. You know, I mentioned that I, I, I went into a school board meeting. They weren't supposed to be talking about the, the, uh, the LifeWise thing, but it was just people, you, in the first few minutes, you could make statements, and it came up. And there, there was, you know, eight or so people aggressively against LifeWise. And you're listening to them, and the weird thing to me is, you know, some of them were atheists, so we kind of get that. But then some of them were would say they were Christians from super liberal churches who don't believe in the Bible. And, you know, and then, you know, they're just blasting this. And we need to test. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. You know, and uh, they don't, you know, they don't follow the teachings of Christ. They don't follow the teachings of the Bible. They've, they've just kind of reworked that to make the Bible say whatever they want. But he's saying, hey, the, the Ephesians, you guys have persevered you, without even growing weary, and he commends them. But, there's a but. But bad news is coming. So he's telling them all the good things. This is kind of like, if you've ever been a boss or an employee and you're sitting in one of those meetings and you've been called in or whatever, you've called somebody in, and then you're like, you know, there's a lot of good things that you're doing. Let me name a few things. And then you're kind of wondering, okay, this could go bad at any moment. You know, and they'll, they'll name some things, but then the more they name, you're thinking, oh, maybe this is just a totally good meeting. And then there's, you've done this right, and you're killing this, and this is good, and you're crushing in this area, and all that. And then, what's the word? But. 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 And then you're like, but, oh, there, oh, there's a but. Oh, and you know, okay, what's coming next is not going to be so great. 
That's what's happened. And especially for these things, think about this. There's seven identical copies of this letter heading out to seven churches. And each letter addresses all seven churches. So the first people to get the letter is going to be Ephesus. They're the closest to Patmos. So they get the letter first. They know everybody else is going to be reading this letter or some of the other churches that are around them and eventually all the churches. And so they're reading this and all of a sudden they're told, man, you're working hard. I appreciate you know, your dedication. Your doctrine is spot on. You're nailing it. You're doing the work. You're not, you're not getting tired of it. You're hanging tough. You know, and, and they got to be hearing this as this is read to them going, Man, this is Jesus through John telling us we're crushing it. You know, and they're pumped. They're like, wow, maybe we are that good. Wow, we are, we are crushing it. We're killing it. And then, but, but, the bad news. And that's the charge against Ephesus. We see that next verse, verse four. But I have this against you. All those other things were good. Now we got a problem. I have this against you that you have left your first love. Not lost your first love, left your first love. Imagine being there. Good work, you're working hard, you're doing this stuff, your doctrine's right, you're, you're killing it, everything's going good. And then, but, oh, oh, but I have this against you. What, what, what is that? You've left your first love. You've left your first love. Strong believers fighting against the godless culture around them. Hang, hang, they hung tough, but they left their first love. This is what we cannot do. You know, he's writing this to churches, but what are churches? Churches aren't buildings, right? Churches are the people in the church. A church is a group of believers. You've left your first love. They no longer had the passion they once did. Their actions were good, even great, but their hearts Drifted. That's what we can't do. And there's a danger of that happening all the time. We get so busy with stuff. And, and sometimes most of that stuff can be good stuff. Family stuff, church stuff, good stuff. But we can have left our first love. And I've been wrestling with this for my own life. By the way, he's writing this to churches. The church is just filled with Christians. He's writing this to us as individual Christians. And the way he says this, we're going to find out later, it's not just to the church and, oh, this is just for you. He's writing to those seven historical churches, but they represent what happens in all time of all history and what happens in our own lives. God allowed me to go to 11 years of college full-time and allowed me to work full-time all through the 11 years of college. Good news, I graduated with several degrees, no debt, no school debt. Bad news, 
I was busy all the time. And that's not always good for your relationship with Christ. That meant I went to school all morning, full-time student, and then worked all afternoon until about midnight, you know, and, and then repeat. I remember in the middle of doing that, that what, what am I here, you know, every once in a while, did you ever find yourself doing a bunch of stuff and you're like, what, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? When the why is, I want to serve God, the one who saved me, you know. But, but then it's like I'm missing that sometimes I, in the busyness, I would drift from the intimacy with Christ, which was the whole point. That I just want to do what God would want me to do. I'd rather live in a ramshackle cabin in the mountains. But no, God's saying, no, you need to be around people. All of us need to be around some people to point people to Christ. And then I thought, well, maybe God would use me to be a pastor, but i got to get trained for that. So then you're doing it. And then all of a sudden you're realizing, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm working, school, it's going okay, yada, yada. But, man, I'm starting to feel like I'm not as close to God. As I was. I remember one time for a short time, part of my job for a while, for a couple of years, was driving to these locations and checking these properties. One was an abandoned cotton mill that had been taken over for storage. It was tumbling down, got a bad part of town, got broken into all the time. And, and, and all the guys hated that. If that was their night to go check that, they had to drive through the parking lot, look around. You know, it was just a waste of time. I loved it. I wouldn't just drive to the parking lot, I'd stop in the parking lot, get out, grab my baton light walk through, and my gun, walk through every building, peek in every broken window, just go around, because that was my time to be with God. That was my time that I can disengage with all the busyness and talking to people and be alone, and it was just my time. And sometimes before I got back in the truck, I would just drop to my knees in the gravel and say, God, I want to do what you want me to do, and you're the most important thing to me. And then you get that back. And it happens to all of us. We get busy. You want a confession? You know, we got so many things going on. I feel guilty because then I'm not interacting with the word to prepare with, for this as much as I want to. And it's like, what am I doing? Well, I'm doing this because I love God's word. But Studying God's word is sort of the last thing I do all week, and I get that cut short because I'm doing all. I, it happens to it can ha, it happen to me. It can happen to me now, and it can happen to you now, where we're doing a lot of right things, but we have left our first love deadly for our relationship, for our vibrancy, for our joy. And so, how do we make sure we don't? How do we fix that? Well, that's the correction part. Jesus tells us how to recapture our first love. He does that in the next verse. And he's basically going to tell us this. Therefore, remember, that's the first thing, remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. What, what are we remembering? From where you've fallen. Okay, that's not... Remember when you first knew something or how far you were when God plucked you up, not where you've come from, it's how you've fallen. Well, what's that? 
Well, because when God plucks us up like he did me out of nowhere and loved me even though I didn't deserve to be loved by him and died for me even though I didn't deserve for him to die for me, when you first get that, when that first clicks in your mind, when you realize that God created you, he knows everything about you, he knows your every thought, he knows your every motivation, and he still loves you. And I don't mean just love and what does it, he likes you. He doesn't like everything you do because sometimes we all do wrong things. But he loves you, likes you, provided for you, wants relationship with you, wants you to talk to him. When that clicks, then you all of a sudden your soul just explodes open and your heart is just there with God. And everything you do, it's God loves me. He's loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ bled out for me. Kevin Pinkerton why? I didn't deserve it. None of us did. But he did it. And when you get that, when it all clicks, when you understand the gospel, when you become a believer, nothing trumps that. That's everything. Remember how you were at first and now how you've fallen from that. We get in routines. They can be good routines. But what's our motivation? A habit? Or is it the, that first love? And then he says, remember and repent. Repent. Turn away. Change your mind. Hey, I want what I had at the beginning. I want that fervent relationship with God. I repent. I'm not settling for anything less than that. And then the third thing, do do the deeds that you did at first or do them with the motivation that you had at first. And then he says, and then there's a warning or else we already had the but and now we have, you've left your first love. Here's how you fix that. And now here's what happens if you don't fix it. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What's that mean? The lampstand represents the church. He's writing a group of believers saying, if you guys don't get this right, this church will die. For generations, they got it right because it didn't die. But there's no church there now. It's gone. The lampstand removed. Remember, where's that now? Modern day Turkey. Not a whole lot of Christians there. And we see that happening all around us. In our city, there are liberal churches dying left and right. Empty buildings or, or churches that you look at the building, it's a big building like they used to be thriving and, and one of, they're just a shell with a few people there. Why? Because they left the teaching of the Bible they rejected the Bible, and when they rejected the Bible, they also, without realizing it, rejected the real Jesus and substituted the real Jesus with another Jesus that sort of felt about things like they did and liked everything they did. That's not the real Jesus. It's a Jesus they made up in their mind, and their church just dies. Remember from where you've fallen. Think back to the beginning. Think about it this way. How often do we think back to the joy we had at first and measure ourselves against that? Or another way of saying is, when's the last time you told your kids 
how and when you became a believer. Well, well, yeah, well, my kids know that. When's the last time you told your kids about the joy you had when you became a believer and what that meant to you and how profound that was? Do they all know that? Have you ever told them that? That's what I'm talking about. Remember, you know, repent, return. And he warns us, if you don't, we're gone. Then Jesus actually commends them again. And he says, hey, this, he says, you do have. Back to, it's like he's wrapping the correction right in the middle of positive, positive. This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitans. I get that, third try, Nicolaitans. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. By the way, this is Jesus talking through John. This is the Jesus that these churches have rejected. Do you see what's happening? He's saying, here's one more thing I appreciate about you, that you hate, what? You hate the deeds, I'm sorry, of the Nicolaitans. Man, I had a hard time spitting that out. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And then the kicker, this is Jesus talking through John, which I also hate. Jesus saying, which I also hate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus loves everybody, right? Jesus doesn't hate the Nicolaitans, right? Jesus hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But this is the Jesus that liberal churches have forgotten. There's no hate against sin from God. This is the Jesus that they've erased, and then they've just replaced him with a Jesus of their mind that doesn't hate anything or anybody And we don't know about the Nicolaitans, where that originated. Scholars kind of debate that. What we do know is it led people into false teaching and sexual immorality. This, I also hate the deeds. That's our problem. Because we've all done sin that Jesus hates. All of us. I've done things that Jesus hates, God hates, and you have too. That's why Jesus had to come and give his life for us. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, the Son leaves, takes on human flesh, lives a perfect life, ultimately allows himself to be tortured to death by his own creation in order to pay judicially our sin penalty. Because a perfect righteous judge has to punish sin. But he himself takes our penalty on himself to pay for our sins. But the only way that counts for us, he says is when we put our faith, our trust, 
in Christ alone. And then he kind of wraps this all up in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. That's just Jesus' way of saying, listen up. Listen up. This is important. Says to the churches, not just your church, the churches. And then he talks to him who overcomes. That's who the person who lives their life and shows that they are a true believer, that they really got it, that it really did click, that even though they drifted apart sometimes, they always came back. You'll be able to eat of the tree, which is in the paradise of God, which is just talking about heaven. We don't have time to get into that. Here's the thing. Have you left your first love? What motivates you? Even to do good things. Ultimately, why? Get rid of all the junk and get down to the basics. Why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you remembering what God has done for you? We're going to end this a little bit different. I asked the guys to change the song. It's one of the songs we've already sang. But it's so important to me that I and us, that we make sure we haven't left our first letter. If we have, we come back. That we remember, we repent, we return. And so we're going to go a little old school. We didn't do this first service. But we're going to sing this song that we already sang in the service. I want you to sing it like you mean it, like, like you sang it the first time you understood it. And if you know you got some areas in your life that right now are just way out of whack with God, during the song, this helped me when I was younger, just come down here. I know it's a little freaky and, and you're doing it in, in public and nobody knows why you're there, but you're down here praying. Just come down here and pray about it. Leave it with God and go back. And maybe just by doing that physical action of coming and praying down here or on these steps, it will help you remember, hey, my first love. Let's stand together and pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. Lord, help us to remember with, with fervent passion the way you loved us and what it meant to us at first and to rediscover that, to return to that. Lord, help us to remember your love for us, how that impacted our life at first because we want that for the rest of our lives. We want the joy of that, the impact of that, the motivation of that right now in Christ's name.